This episode is part of our ongoing series with Queen's University Belfast, where we have the chance to sit down with an interesting student, professor or graduate once a month to hear and share their story. To find out more and see the other episodes as part of this series, please visit bestofbelfast.org forward slash Queen's. Today's episode is with Dr. Ryan Milligan, a lecturer at the Astrophysics Research Centre, whose work primarily focuses on the study of the sun and how it can impact our planet. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk all about growing up, working in fish factories in Ardlas, the life-changing moment of experiencing his first total solar eclipse, how he went from truck driving to studying astrophysics, landing jobs at NASA, the University of Glasgow, and of course, Queen's, his incredible TV show Space Truckers that was picked up by the BBC, why studying solar flares matter, his plans to launch a rocket in 2024, along with the most challenging and successful moments of his journey so far. Thanks so, so much for being here. Really appreciate you spending this time with us. And I really hope you enjoy this far-reaching, lighthearted, yet educational, yet very, very serious at some points conversation with the incredible Ryan Milligan. Let's go. A random question, but I actually was thinking about you this morning because I was fitting bulbs for my car for the MOT on Friday. And I was like, see all the truckers. Mm-hmm. Like, do how much DIY of their own vehicle do they do? You're not allowed to do any anymore. Nothing? Nothing. So, like, a headlight goes out and you, you call, can't touch call it. call out a mechanic. Really? Everything. It used to be, when I was doing it back in the day, it was the Wild West. Like, wow. you fixed it on the road. Yeah. Brake hoses come off the trailers, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Bra- tra- trailer brakes lock up, lights, all sorts of things. You just have to get in, bleeding, bleeding the engine if you run it. I've I've coasted up to d- diesel pumps. <laughs> Literally, she's conked out going up to diesel pumps, and then you have to tip the, tip the cab and and uh, bleed out the engine. That's mad and stuff. But now nothing anymore. Crazy. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, times have changed, haven't they? Big time. That's big sure. time. Then we're then with the days. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Look, I'm just gonna get going. Is that good for you? Yeah. Uh, Welcome. Good to have you here. Good Thanks to be for here. Making the track. <laughs> Hopefully you were coasting your way here, that's for sure. Um, let's start, like, first job. What was the first job you had? Um, I guess... Because I look at you and I'm like, you've had some cool jobs. I wouldn't say cool. Um, I wouldn't say cool, but I, what I would say is you make me feel like less of a man <laughs> <laughs> with the jobs that you've had. <laughs> well, I, I grew up in our glass fishing yep. village in the coast of County Down and my whole family were in the fish business and it's a fishing village and so you just get stuck in. Sure. And I have photographs from me at St. George's Market. I must have been about seven or eight. Epic. Selling fish at my dad's fish stall at St. George's Market and then just playing around the factories and you just, you, it's, it's almost like child labour. You get just kind of, ro- <laughs> you get roped into it a bit at that age and just like you're in the family, you get down there and you help out and yeah. And I guess that's the first job, job. And then it was hard even then to sort of distinguish between work and play sometimes because you just, you hang out with your dad and, you know, your cousins and stuff and they're all just mucking around the factory. And then the next thing you're on a forklift and a pallet truck and (laughs) then you work your way up the lorries and all the rest of it. So you just kind of grow up with it. Yeah. And like I wasn't paid or anything yeah, probably yeah, yeah, very yeah, well. Yeah. You, get, you get your food on the table. Exactly. I was going to say you were, you were paid in room and board. Exactly. You? So you just, yeah. you kind of helped out a little bit. And then 
I guess I just assumed that's what I would be doing. Sure. Like what you grew up in a village there, miles from anywhere you don't really know much else at that certainly at that age, hadn't much exposure to, to anything else. And so that was all I knew. Yeah. That and music, I suppose, growing up is like I'll do one of those two things. But um, how did you get into music? Um, I guess uh, like everything else, his cousin I had a cousin uh, who was a couple of months older than me, and his bit he had a big brother. I was the eldest of my family, but he had a big brother, and so we got everything filtered down through him, nice. like Led Zeppelin and Metallica and oh, Black yeah. Sabbath and Megadeth. Awesome, bro! It was a lot of metal uh, back in the eighties. So uh, yeah, that's what I grew up with as well. And played drums and bands and gigging just across the road in the limelight when I was like fourteen, um, playing up there and yeah, it was it was it was, it was fun, a lot of fun. Um, but again, like who knew what we were doing back sure. then? You're just it was just kind of winging it and seeing where things go. So rubber hits the road, and you turn the official age of sixteen. Uh, you know, there's always that crossroads that you face, mm-hmm. and probably particularly you. Did you ha- was it a hard decision to decide should I stay in school or should I just go get a job? Um, I guess I suppose there was parental pressure too. There was peer pressure. I, you know, I, you know, I loved music and I loved playing in bands, and I was like, I'd love to do this, but I knew that that's a tough, tough thing to get into, and to be, you have to be exceptional or yeah. really, really lucky. And so I kind of just didn't feel competent enough to do that. And but I wanted to stay in music business, so even. Uh, when I left, finished my A-levels at 18, I spent a year in Dublin in a place like this, working in recording studios. I was trained to be a sound engineer, awesome, thinking man. thinking that would be my way into the music industry and yeah. that was something I could contribute and spend a year down there. Uh, I was That was kind of supposed to be my year out before, yeah. before university. And then I was going to, the plan was to come up and study law, accountancy, Wow. Something, something, a real job, yeah, so yeah, get, yeah, a, get a proper career out of it. Um, because, you know, I was good at maths. You know, it's high school. I really loved maths. and uh, Which automatically makes you smart, which automatically uh, it then doesn't, it, it fast tracks you into like, oh, yeah, you should be a lawyer or a doctor because you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It was, I, I find maths fun. It just made, it clicked with me. Some people click with languages, some people sure. click with music, some people click with art. Maths just clicked. It just, I don't know what it was, but I thought if I could, right, that's my strength. And so my mom was like, yeah, you should be an accountant. <laughs> like, <laughs> office job, sit and tie, don't know that that really fits. But, you know, so the year out in Dublin studying recording engineering was kind of the, that was that, mm-hmm. just settle, take a, take some time out. Um, and that year out then became four years out. And again, I just, there was no work, couldn't get a job. No, wasn't ready for university, and so I ended up back at the fish factories, and nice. and that because that was there, it was a family business, and yeah, it was hard. Like so, I would have been what nineteen, twenty, and like being on the harbour in the middle of the night, blowing a gale, emptying fish boats, and yeah. traipsing fish back and forward to the factory, and like doing eighty hour weeks, and working in blast freezers at minus twenty degrees, and climbing into tip, tipping trailers up to your waist and fish guts. Yeah. It was it was a hard enough gig, like it was sure. it was tough going. Um, but I, again, what else do you do? I didn't know yep. much else at that point. That was that was the only thing on the table, except the truck driving. Like I was even from 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 no age, I was obsessed with trucks because my dad always had a few, and so my my eyes were always on the keys of the RA. Like, mm. does that trailer need moved anywhere? Can I <laughs> can I shift that over for you? And just so. I, 
because you didn't need a license to drive on private property. Nice. So I could do a bit of shunting around the yard, and that that got my foot in there. And the, uh, literally on my twenty first birthday, I had my first HGV lesson. Epic. And that, I was obsessed. Like I wanted the HGV license. Yeah. So uh, so got that, and started driving. Um, not from a dad, but he wouldn't let me drive. <laughs> he wouldn't let me drive his lorry. Um, so I started doing a bit from my uncles, and again in the fish over to Donegal, Galway, Cork, Waterford, anywhere around the around the island to to get the fish back to the yard, and then the guts and all the awful after process, and would have to go to Kelly Beggs to get put into fish meal or pet food or fertilizer and all these other stuff. So that was my kind of job for a while, and that was hard. That was a hard gig too. Long hours, heavy loads, a lot of concentration, and uh, through a series of sort of uh, disagreements, let's call it that, with sure. within the family, I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm out. Yeah. I, I can't." It's, if I didn't go to university then, so by then I was like twenty three, mm. um, and I sort of made made the decision to to go to Queens and, and study astrophysics. Unbelievable, as you do, you know. Well, that, that had kind of been on the cards. I mean, again, growing up in the, in the, in our glass, we had clear night skies and beautiful stars. And I was went into science fiction and, and movies. But, uh, one of the math teachers I had, uh, for A level had done astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And so I just plagued him with questions and, and, just conversation and ideas and, you know, he takes to the pub after class even and, yeah, and yeah, talk, yeah. talk space and stuff. And he just, it just blew my mind about what else was out there, the, the range of possibilities. And, and and I just wanted to learn. Like I had no aspirations to pursue the astrophysics yeah. line. I just thought, this is fascinating. I just want to know more. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I'd never studied A-le- physics at A-level or even in high school. So that was a, a challenge to get back into the way. And, and, and having been out of education for four years, the brain had kind of festered a wee bit and sure, yeah. it needed a bit of a jump start. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll spend three or four year, years at university, get a physics degree, and then who knows, right? You've yeah. got a physics degree, you've got something in your back pocket to, to go and look, see what offers and employment was beyond that. And having the HGV license as well, Paid the bills, so you know. As like st- you said earlier, a great thing to fall back on. Well, I always have it. Yeah, there's no, there's no shortage of drivers, as as the last couple of, <laughs> as the last couple of years have, have taught me yet again. And so, so studying physics, astrophysics, and uh, and lorry driving, mostly up here for for agencies, doing a lot of supermarket work, um, Saturdays, nights, afternoons, yeah. long shifts in between lectures, yeah, um, to pay the bills. Yeah, that's the thing. You you still. You're still doing it. I, I am now, yeah. Well, not so much the last few months, but yeah, during the pandemic, um, I was <laughs> the phone never stopped ringing basically yeah. for for drivers to come back and just pull up, pull people out of a hole. But just because between panic buying and the driver shortage and between drivers getting sick themselves with COVID and stuff, there's just a, a drastic shortage and people need to eat. So, um, so I kept that up. Uh, well, the last two years, most Saturdays and the odd Sundays, and give up Easter and Christmas holidays to to get back on the road and keep the shelves stocked and, and some of the supermarkets as well. Totally, mate. So I want to go back a wee bit. There's a few kind of <laughs> a few loops that I'm just like, hmm, interesting. Uh, really ignorantly, gave me just a wee bit of an education about fish. 
So, like, what are we catching off our shores? What were the bulk of the types of fish that you were processing? Well, we, in, in our glass, it was mostly herring okay. in the summer, and then there was a mackerel season you would get in the autumn, winter time. Um, and so the fish, the boats would either land in the village or somewhere in Ireland, and we'd have to go and offload the, the fish. And even that, like, it was, <laughs> it was, sort of, it was so dodgy, like, because, you know, some of these boats have quotas yeah and they're really allowed to land so much fish a year and so we'd get phone calls telling us to be at this harbor in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and there'd be trucks lined up for miles these boats would offload thousands of tons in a night and they'd bring all their own staff and all their own fort lifts and none of it would get listed it was it was crazy times and like i was 23 24 i didn't know <laughs> anything You're, i was just go where i'm told and we were overloaded and we're overworked and yeah. driving over hours and pulling the fuse on the speed limiters and trying to sure, get back yeah. down the road. It was the wild west of lorry driving. Yeah. Um, and it, but that's kind of what you did. Looking back, it was insane. But uh, so, yeah, so we'd bring all the fish back to the village, our glass, it would go th- get processed, frozen, and then we would load up container ships in Kelly bags that were bound for Russia or Eastern Europe or, or Spain would process a lot of like thousands. It would take us a week to load a ship, you know, wow. back to running lorries back and forward between Ardlass and Kelly bags for a week solid load, loading up boats because there's massive, massive containers. And so where's the product going mainly? Uh, again, this we're talking 20 yep. plus years ago. I'm well out of the business now, but I remember yep. we loaded ships for Russia. A lot of it would go by road to um, Spain, Czech Republic, Eastern Europe, a lot of that kind of side of things. How much would stay? Like how much would be consumed locally? Locally, uh, a couple of boxes at St. George's Market <laughs> probably. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. A little bit. I mean, the vast majority of what my family did, again, back then, uh, all was for export. Wow. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to kind of touch on was you were part of a generation of people who had like kind of a weird thing going on where you were both incredibly analog and then all of a sudden very, very, very digital. Yeah, so I guess so. How yeah. did you, like, how did that work? Because you're obviously, you're working with your hands a lot. You're doing, you know, the factory jobs, but then tech's kind of on the up and up uh, through the 80s and then you've got the 90s and then all of a sudden you're being a sound engineer so how, how did that kind of your what was your exposure to tech um god i guess well apart from the music the music side was probably the most obvious thing but yeah. i also remember my mum bought me this truck again obviously it always <laughs> comes back to the trucks it's called an ultrasonic wrecker okay and this was yeah early 80s and it was remote control fancy thing and it was state of the art at the time and she came back one day to find that I dismantled it (laughs) there's no chance like I convinced I could put it back together again not a mission Um, so like all kids taking things apart seeing how they work um, and you know from complicated hi-fi systems to I don't know you probably don't remember scart leads and video leads and how we do remember scart leads yeah and having to you know rig video recorders together to, to copy movies that you'd rented out and and so I did a lot of that kind of things and and then ripping CDs and so there was all and then you know amplifiers guitar pedals um, I guess was the kind of electronic side of things which you know I'd had a had a grasp off before studying sound engineering but 
in the computer age, yeah, I was a very slow starter. Mm. I, had a, I had a very steep hill to climb once once the internet came on, and yeah. I I stayed away from it for for a long time until until university forced you to have yeah. an email address. I'm like, a what? <laughs> um, and even smartphones and all that stuff. But I've I've tried to keep up. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the uni experience for you. What um, those years like busy. Sure. Um, I worked probably too hard. Yeah. Uh, I never missed a class, I, but I, I genuinely loved what I was doing. I found the physics and uh, in particular the astronomy modules, which sort of came later on, um, just just fascinating. And I think to me, those years out gave me time to appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. Working in fish factories and coal yards and beef packing plants and all sorts of places. Um made sitting in a lecture theater learning about space kind of thing. <laughs> okay this this is more, more manageable um but i say like i you know I had, a, I had a house and a mortgage at the time and a car so i had bills to pay and sure. so i had to the only thing i knew to do was drive lorries um so um saturdays and sundays i'd be up at four or five in the morning driving for 12 13 14 hours we're doing afternoon shifts at Marks and Spencer's, doing two trips to Derry yeah. uh, in the afternoon um, to pay the bills. And then through, the, you know, during the summer holidays and stuff, I would drive for the family and do more long distance overnight kind of haul work. But I just, yeah, I, I had a great time as a student and, you know, slightly older than some of my classmates and maybe had a different perspective um, on what I was doing and why I was doing it. I just, I really got into it. And I don't think anybody else who was in my class at the time stayed in physics. Maybe a couple of might've become physics teachers or high school teachers, yeah. but none of them stayed in research or, or in science in any way, shape or form. So it was a, it was a bizarre time, but, um, but just a, a great, great bunch of staff, the, the academics, the lecturers at the time were, were so supportive and so encouraging. Um, and then for my level four master's project, after I was bumped up from just doing a bachelor's degree to doing a, to doing a master's, um, and getting to getting projects like calculating the age of the universe, like oh, that's man. that's your pro- that's your project, <laughs> really. And so you know, I'd, I'd stay after class, I'd work through lunch, like I just soaked it up, like really, really got my got into it. And so my supervisor at the time, who is now my boss, <laughs> he said, "Yeah, you might want to do a PhD. Mm. I think you're you're maybe cut out for for doing something like this." And I was like, "Really?" But I was just going to go back to driving lorries again. What are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so for my master's project, like studying actual data from spacecraft that had observed the sun, I'm like, "You're getting you're paying me almost <laughs> to do this." It's yeah. So I just. Just like a sponge, just just soaked it yeah. all up, and so yeah, so it, so that was that was the kicker. Was like, yeah, I'm going to do a PhD in astrophysics Brilliant. and see where it goes. And solar flares, right? So that was always your no. Um, so again, my boss, uh, Mahalas Mathiodakis, who's who was my supervisor back Great. then. He was a yeah, <laughs> he's, he's he's from Greece. In case you hadn't figured out, he was a a cool stars physicist, which means stars that have sort of temperatures in and around it, same as our sun or slightly cooler. Um, that Frightening was, that that's cool. Exactly. <laughs> you only have less than 10,000 degrees. Um, and so he had some ideas on on a solar physics project on on studying the sun and sunspots and, and bits and pieces. 
and a former graduate from Queens who was then working at NASA in the States at the Goddard Space Flight Center contacted Mahalis at the time and said, do you have any students? Because I've got some grant money uh, to fund a summer student for NASA. And he goes, well, this guy Ryan just started. <laughs> he might be interested. And so Peter Gallagher was much more on the solar flare side. And it was like, we have so much going on. We've now multiple spacecraft observing these events uh, from the from Earth. And we can do these coordinated observations to try and understand the cause and effect of solar flares almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, so would you like to go and work at NASA for the summer? Uh-huh, <laughs> sure. And so so it was him then that, that sort of guided me uh, into the solar flare research side. And I got to work with the people who build these spacecraft, who design the software, who Bonkers, are like man. working on these projects for 50 years, their entire lives. And like, you just, you turn up at NASA and again, like a sponge, you just absorb everything. There's yeah. so much intelligence and so much knowledge in their respective areas. And, and the, the conversations, even just even over lunch, it's just fascinating to sit and be with people of that intellect and like coming from, our glass. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're from the, from the, no disrespect to the people in, the, in my dad's fish factory, but the conversation was not always the most stimulating. <laughs> um, to get into work at NASA for several months a year for three years was just, that was me hooked. That's crazy. So talk to me about, uh, when was, did, when was your first solar eclipse? So I think it was during my PhD, um, Actually, my, the first one that I never saw was in 1999, and that was the last one that was visible from the UK. And um, the only place in the UK it was visible from was Cornwall, the very southern tip of Cornwall mm-hmm. and sort of northern France. So you had to be down there for totality. And I was driving lorries at the time, and I remember around the time of the eclipse stopping in Donegal, I was driving through the mountains in Donegal and I stopped. It was cloudy as hell. Like I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know sure. what was going to happen, but I knew something was happening. Yeah. And I stopped the lorry and got out and looked around. But what did I know? Nah, like there was, there was knackers yeah. lashing with rain and everything else. So, so I kind of wrote that one off. Um, and then being a PhD student in solar physics, thinking I should, probably go and see a solar, solar <laughs> eclipse you at felt, some You felt point. obliged to do kind it. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> people were making a big deal out of this kind of thing and I just felt it's something they should probably just check off and get it out of the way. <laughs> and so in, I want to say 2005, 2006, I get them all mixed up sometimes, um, Astronomy Ireland, organized, they chartered a plane from Dublin to Turkey. Legends. Um, for, for that solar eclipse that year. And so the whole plane of Irish people flew out to Turkey and half of them were serious amateur astronomers with their telescopes and their cameras and the other half were just there for the crack. <laughs> like you could just tell and I can tell you who I fell in with. Like, And uh, and of course, the, in the days leading up to it, there's like, what if there's weather? What if the clouds roll in? And like, what are we going to do? Nobody really knew what to expect or maybe there's some of the, the, the older hands did. And we'd had meetings and plan Bs and plan As and what are you going to do and where are you going to be and what's your vantage point? And and so, and I remember just being on the side of a mountain up outside Antalya and where we were looking out over the Mediterranean and during the partial phase, you, I could see this column of darkness Crazy. across the Mediterranean, and that's the moon's shadow rushing towards you at a thousand miles an hour. 
and the hairs are the hairs are going on the back of my neck just <laughs> thinking about it. And it always does. It still sets me off. Um, and then day turns to night, the stars come out, and you see the sun's outer atmosphere. And for those two, three, four minutes, when you're just basking in the moon's shadow, looking up and being able to look directly at the sun with the naked eye and see this ethereal outer atmosphere that you just can't see at any other time unless you're in space and have special telescopes on the spacecraft that we work with. It's it's a humbling experience. It is it is life-changing. And I've never met someone who hasn't been blown away <coughs> by it at some point. And, and again, after every eclipse, when people see their first one, the, the immediate question they ask is, when's the next one? Awesome. And so that's it. That was me hooked on the eclipse chasing. And so... 10 eclipses later over the last 15 years and already making plans now for the next one. So it really was like the gateway drug then? It, it, it literally is. And it's, it's probably more expensive than drugs, um, <laughs> but, but a lot, but infinitely better for you. Um, I, I find it, I, I love traveling anyway. And it's something I got to do a lot through my career. Um, and again, after university and, and working for NASA, getting to see the world at all was an experience. Um, and it was actually a lecture at Queen's when I was an undergraduate, Don Polacco. Um, and he said that him and his family, wherever there's a solar eclipse that year, that's where they go on their holidays. I'm nice. like, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, great yeah, yeah. idea. I'm going to do that. When's the next one? It's in Siberia. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that'll take a bit more planning. But yeah, went booked a ticket on the Trans-Siberian Railway and went from Moscow to Beijing and stopped, saw the eclipse. Um, um the ones that followed after that, China, Australia, Indonesia, mm. Faroe Islands, Tanzania, uh, Argentina, Nebraska, and then slap bang in the middle of the pandemic, I flew down to Chile Crazy. for the one in December 2020. Like I went out of my way yeah, 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 yeah. to get down there. Yeah. Plied it out, didn't see anything, but sure. made the effort. I mean, it, it, this is a terrible comparison, but... Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, people who go to see every single Northern Ireland game and it takes them all over the world. It's sure. a great way to see the world. Why not? Yeah. So, again, ignorant question, but that's kind of what this show's all about. How frequently do they happen? Why do they happen? And more importantly, based on what you just said, why can you only see them in certain parts of the world each time? Okay. So, on average, they happen about once every 18 months. So they're not as rare as people think. Yeah, that's kind way of more think. than I yeah. thought. Yeah. And they happen because the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, but is also 400 times closer. So they have the, peer, the same apparent diameter in the sky. Wow. And no other planet and moon combination in the solar system has that. I mean, that's kind of freaky. It, it is. And that's... that fact in itself makes me question a lot, a of, lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah, I'm like shook. I'm like yeah, questioning my reality only, right now. The only planet with life has this remarkable coincidence. Wow. And you have to keep chalking it up to coincidence. And so because of celestial mechanics and the orbits of the, the moon around the Earth and the Earth around the sun, every now and again they line up in a straight line. So you'll have the moon will come between the Earth and the sun. And essentially the moon then casts a shadow Onto the onto the Earth, and that shadow is only about a hundred miles wide, and that's why you have to be within that hundred mile right. radius or that diameter to to catch totality. Now, if you're outside that, you'll get a partial eclipse. Mm -hmm. But even if you're ninety nine percent of the sun being blocked out, 
you will not see the corona, you will not see the outer atmosphere, you won't see any of the other effects that you get. So you've got to be in the bulls. You have to be in that in that path of totality wow. to wit, to witness the greatest celestial event you will ever see in your life. And again, more ignorance. Why is it in a different place every time? Because it happens different. Just just well, they they kind of there is a pattern. They okay. do they do kind of repeat over decades and, and hundred centuries even. Um, and there's a town in Illinois, I think, that had an eclipse in 2017 and they get another one in 2024. So what? two back to back. The last, well, the last eclipse was in December past, was in Antarctica, and unfortunately I missed that one. But the previous two were both over Chile and Argentina. Wow. So Chile and Argentina got two in a row. Crazy. So, but on average, any one place on earth will get an eclipse every 500 years. On average, but there are, you know, sure, yeah. thing, there's a great spread in that. And so that's the joy is like, where's the next one? How do I get to see it? What's the weather forecast going to be like? Do I need to stay mobile? Will I need a car or a rental, yeah. a camper van or something to get around in? What if there's clouds? Do I, where do I go to next? Yeah. So it's the whole logistics of going to see them. And especially if it's in some far flung part of the world. Like I ended up at a top of a, in a volcano in the Indonesia one time to see one because it was the the only place I could get to. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's the adventure to me is is even just planning these and and uh, and getting to them. And that's cool. So, what is the bulk of your research looking at currently? So right now, um, I'm still on solar flares. Great. So we're still looking. You know, these are the biggest explosions in the solar system. Uh, they're colossal releases of energy. Uh, that occur over minutes, time scales of minutes. Um, and right now, the, well, the sun has a cycle of activity. Um, it's called, called the solar cycle. It's about average about every 11 years. And that, the number of, uh, it's when the number of uh, sunspots rises and falls. Um, we've just come out of a very deep solar minimum. So it's been quite quiet for a number, for the last two or three years or something. But that's picking up now. We can see a lot of changes, a lot of big sunspots starting to appear. And Any a lot of reason why it was quiet? It's it's a natural occurrence. We okay. still don't really know why the sun has a cycle. Yeah, is one of the kind of most profound things you said about the sun. Years. On average, eleven years yeah. between about nine and fifteen, the sun will will have a, a rise and fall in the number of suns. But it does like clockwork. It's wow. been doing it ever since, as far back as we can tell, almost. Um, and we don't know why. So it must have something to do with the the, the interior, the core of the sun. Yeah, there's some sort of dynamics going on in the center that causes the magnetic field, which is generated in the core of the sun, mm-hmm. to to reach the surface, and then it sort of re- it peters out after a while and falls back down, and then resets itself. and And it actually the, the north and south poles will flip Ooh. every eleven years. So the south becomes the north, north becomes the south. So in, in effect, you've got a twenty two year solar cycle. Um, so anyway, so the more sunspots, then the more solar flares is, is, is the simple way to explain that. And we've had a new re- release of um, spacecraft and telescopes are all now coming online just in time for this solar cycle. And so we're, we're eagerly anticipating data on the observations of these solar flares with these new modern updated nice. uh, satellites and telescopes um, to try and again understand how these releases of energy occur but more importantly, how they impact Earth and, and indeed the other planets as well. So the solar flares are essentially a, a release of radiation. Mm-hmm. So it's ultraviolet and X-ray radiation in, in its simplest form. And our atmosphere absorbs that radiation and expands. And that causes a whole havoc of problems for communication, radio communication, GPS accuracy, 
satellite drag on, on orbiting spacecraft and all sorts of things. So we're trying to understand a bit more of the interaction between the sun and the earth. Um, and so I'm delegating some of these projects to my students now and getting them to kind of do the work because I'm loaded with admin and teaching and I don't have as much time to do the fun science anymore. Um, but in essence, we're still trying to understand how different characteristics of the flare itself will impact the earth and why are some will cause these radio blackouts and others won't. And we're looking for in more of that kind of interaction now. That's cool because I'm always very interested in like, what's the practical application of this field? Right. And I mean, communication and radio frequencies and GPS, mm -hmm. like these things run our lives. They do now. So we, mm -hmm. it's absolutely essential that there's people like you check, looking into this stuff. And we, we're, we are more on the scientific side of things. Sure. So it's more of a scientific curiosity. A lot of it is, but yeah. in solar physics um, and, and what we call now space weather has very real implications. And uh, there was a there was a case in 2017 during the hurricane season in the Atlantic when they were performing search and rescue operations in the Caribbean that coincided with a massive solar flare. So they couldn't communicate to each other during a search and rescue operation because of a radio blackout. Great. So you had a terrestrial weather event. You had this massive hurricane that came in causing all this devastation. But in space, you have another hurricane, essentially, wow. that's causing uh, the radio blackouts that... Uh, meant they couldn't talk to each other to yeah. try and perform these search and rescue. So, yeah, it has, it has real-world implications. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how we still know so little. Like I, when you were sharing the story about seeing the, your first solar eclipse, I just was thinking about, can you imagine like being a shepherd in Turkey at some point in history yeah. and, see, and experiencing yeah. that? Like... How could you go on living your life? Like you had a life changing experience and you had an understanding of exactly. why and yeah, what. Yeah. But like if you were exposed to this as, you know, people throughout history have been exposed to, I, I used the term space activity. Mm. It's, it's a very mysterious thing. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, it's, growing up in the countryside where you're exposed to these beautiful night skies and like seeing Haley's Comet when I was 11 and you know, it's can't, you can't help but be inspired yeah. by it. And, and I have, I've met a lot of people over the years who have gone on to do more menial kind of jobs. Who say, oh, I wish I'd loved, I would love to have studied astronomy, but yeah. they just, and they're just the same as me. It's like, I don't see a job. Like, how do you do this? You can have it as a hobby or whatever, Yeah. but people never see it as a career. Mm -hmm. And and that's the thing we're trying to change and inspire young kids who maybe don't think they've got the right grades from high school or come from the right background or all sorts of stereotypes that we've kind of pushing people out of science. We're trying to make it way, way more inclusive and way more accessible to people and encourage them. They might, that spark might already be there, yeah. but they feel they don't have the confidence. They've maybe their peer pressure from friends. What are you doing that for? You know, all sorts yeah. of things. And we're like, there's a real career in this. You can get a good job and get to see the world and get to, to understand and study these phenomena that we, yeah. that we, know so little about yeah I want to talk about your quote you sent through a quote mm. before today I often ask people what their favourite quote is and to paraphrase it I think it was Bill was it Watterson yeah and he said the world would be very different if people took the time to look up at so. stars I mean Bill Watterson's a genius like I grew up on Calvin Hobbes comics I've read everything of one of them multiple times and I could have picked any, <laughs> just opened a random book and I would have, he would have said something profound. 
Um, but I think that one really struck me um, for a number of reasons. I think space is fascinating on a on a very fundamental level. Um, and again, I think a solar eclipse is the greatest manifestation of that. Mm. It's It puts celestial mechanics front and center, and you will never be more aware that you're standing on a ball of rock hurtling through space than during a solar eclipse. <laughs> you, it just puts, it brings everything into perspective. And, and again, you, you know, you hear quotes from astronauts who look back at our planet from, from space and wondering why are we fighting about all this stuff? Why are we falling out over stupid, trivial things? There are no borders. You can't see borders from space. Mm. I think it, it is the one thing that we all share. Mm. Unfortunately, light pollution is now becoming more of an issue and people in the cities aren't experiencing the night sky as much as they probably could or should have. Um, I know a lot of people bought telescopes during lockdowns and, and got, did a lot more backyard astronomy, which is great. Um, but I, th I just don't know anyone who's not inspired or yeah. at least moved in some way or curious. Uh, you know, everyone has the Northern Lights on their bucket list. Everyone wants to see the Northern Lights yeah. or a meteor shower or a comet or something. Like it's it's something that really, um, I think it's just very, it cuts to the very heart of, yeah. of, of who we all are. It's something that we all, we all share. Yeah. I'm a very, very failed uh, Northern Light chaser. When I was a teen, I used to follow all mm -hmm. the, the stuff. And then, you know, you would get up at like 2 a.m. and drive to the North Coast and sit there yeah. at the harbor. <laughs> What's the name of the harbor? Probably Ballycastle or Ballantoy. Ballantoy, that's there, the one. Yeah. yeah, I remember sitting there many's a night and just waiting and waiting and looking and looking and looking. But it's amazing you can see something like that. And we can predict. Yeah. And that's where solar activity comes in because yeah. the solar activity is responsible for that. And we had a massive solar storm here last like, Halloween, at the end of October, start of November. And we, like, I saw the flare. Like, I was up in my office and checking the solar activity as part of my job. And we saw the coronal mass ejection, which is the cloud of material that leaves the sun in the wake of a solar flare. And I was like, this is going to be a big one. <laughs> this is going this is going to hit. And uh, all the forecasts were, yep, um, sometime. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty yeah. on when, the window of when it's going to happen. Um, so I went to bed at 9 o'clock one night, set my alarm for 3 <laughs> to get up. And as soon as I woke up, I looked on Twitter and it was over. Oh, <laughs> and no. it all happened. So I'm like, we need more funding for research. So I, I can get to see the sort of northern lights from home. But no, I have, I've gone to the northern circle, up to the Arctic Circle, mm -hmm. far north of Norway and seen them from up there. So it's, it is pretty magical, but not a patch on a solar eclipse. Wow. Not a patch. Really interesting. Yeah. Good to know. My, my argument is that... You could go to you could hop on a plane now and go to Iceland or Finland and lie on your back in the snow till your bum gets cold and, yeah. and see the northern lights till you're till you've had enough. Eclipses last for at most six minutes mm. is the longest a solar eclipse can physically be, and you have to travel to the other side of the world to see it, and you have to hope for clear skies. And as, like I say, every eighteen months you only get that opportunity. Yeah every 18 months at best. And that uncertainty makes it kind of exciting, I think. Yeah. And it's so fleeting and you just, you do not want it to end, but it will end. Mm. Northern Lights, like I say, will can go on for hours or yeah. even days or whatever, but Eclipse is minutes. Yeah, it is interesting how like, you know, take your picture, you could be lying in Iceland on the snow, mm. looking up at the Northern Lights, mm -hmm. one of the most incredible things the Earth can offer you. Yeah. And you will get bored and you're like, okay, time to go. Time to go. Isn't that so strange? It's weird. Yeah. Humans but, are weird. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, or maybe not. Maybe maybe people will appreciate it more. But I think I think the temperature there would probably. <laughs> I, I've been in minus twenty seven degrees. I no, lights northern lights chasing, so wow. I can tell you it gets painfully cold. Crazy, painfully cold. But, Talk to me a wee bit about the TV show. So, um, as I've said, I've I've a background in lorry driving and I've a. PhD in astrophysics and, and spent many years working for NASA in the States. And again, two things I'm very passionate about, uh, astronomy and, and lorry driving. And so I wanted to, to combine the two. Mm-hmm. And I'd done some research and basically realized that every telescope, every satellite, every rocket, every balloon flight, whatever scientific experiment has to go in the back of a lorry at some point. Mm. And most telescopes are either up a mountain or in a desert or in Antarctica or somewhere exotic and challenging to get to. And I thought, well, how do these drivers do this? Like what challenges do they have to face to get yeah. the telescopes to where it's going to be? And as scientists, you know, we're, we're so used to looking at these beautiful images that these instruments give us back and the research that we can undertake and the, the knowledge that we can gain from the data. But how does the thing get built mm. in the first place? And and so I, I mentioned the idea to a friend of mine who has contacts in the media um, about if I could make a TV show where I'm driving a truck, hauling a piece of scientific equipment, ideally a telescope of some type, talking about the science that we're going to do yeah. and give give people a bit more context of why a lot of these things are taxpayers money in a yeah. lot of cases so we're like this is your money you have a right to understand this is your knowledge bro take it yeah, yeah. You, you're you're allowing us to do this you should understand where this money's going and what you're what you're going to gain from it and what its purpose is and also it was it was an idea that would show scientists in a different light as well again I'm from the countryside and grew up driving lorries is not maybe not something that people associate as a scientist yeah Again, like I mentioned, you might have to come from a certain background or have certain qualifications and everything like that. That's nonsense. And so it was to try and dispel some of those myths that they're, I was going to say bearded men in lab coats, but I can't really talk anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I fall into that category. But um, that it's it's way more accessible than people perhaps think. And like you said earlier about maths being really complicated, it's no more complicated than I find languages or something. You know, we all have our niche. Different brains. Exactly. And so it was, an, it was, and it was a fun thing I wanted to do in itself because I think there's a story there in in building a telescope somewhere. And so I pitched the idea. I pitched it to some different production companies here in Belfast, and eventually got in with Stellify Media, just a couple of streets away. And they loved the idea. We got funding from the BBC and from Sony Pictures. And now we needed a telescope to build. <laughs> so I think we kind of sat on it for about two years yeah. until Peter Gallagher, the guy that brought me to NASA uh, as a PhD student, received funding to build a radio telescope in County Offaly. And this would connect to a network of other radio telescopes all across Europe, essentially building the biggest radio telescope in the world. So it would be 2,000 kilometers wide because they all connect together to form one big super telescope. And so this was extending the baseline. They're in, like in, the, in England and Sweden, Germany. The, the hub is in the Netherlands. It goes out to Estonia, Poland, Italy. And so Ireland was extending the baseline of the, of the array by some measure. And... So he contacted me, knowing, them, knowing my background, and said, do you fancy a trip to the Netherlands? <laughs> and so we, we started planning 
the shipping of this telescope and in the end it took 18 trucks Whoa. to cart the, all the material from the Netherlands to Ireland. And a lot of it was just cables, wires, plastic, polythene, all bits and pieces. So that could go by container ship. But the supercomputer that would take all the data and store all the data, um, it was 300,000 euros a shipping container that had to come by road. Wow. And I was entrusted <laughs> uh, with getting that from the Netherlands to Ireland safely. Just a quick interjection. Do you think that's the most expensive load you've ever carried? Uh, was it? Probably. Yeah? Probably. What would have been close? I, I remember carrying aircraft parts oh. at one point. Um, that was probably not, probably wasn't cheap. Because like something that the the pandemic and everything else that has ensued, shall we say, has kind of brought truckers more top of mind than sure. they ever have been. Mm-hmm. And it really is incredible to think that like every like everything in this room, literally everything like from the mm-hmm. microphone to the lights to the cork on the wall, like was all in a truck at one point. Absolutely, it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, made me feel useful. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So and I, so it brought me back to the point like why not telescopes? Yeah. Why not sp- scientific equipment? And uh, so yeah, so we had a film crew follow us. They flew out to meet us in in the Netherlands at the pickup point, and and we transported this supercomputer um, across the Netherlands and Belgium, and then spent two days at sea to get to Dublin, and then the challenge of getting it from Dublin to inside the grounds of a castle in, in, in <laughs> County Offaly. Uh, so it was it was the most fun I've ever had, and it was a huge experience and something I'm very very proud of. So the show was called Space Truckers. Um, great. Uh, it was, wasn't really going to be called anything else. Know, to be what fair, else? <laughs> what else? Does exactly what it says <laughs> on the tin. Yeah, but I got to talk about about so the the telescope's called LOFAR, which stands for Low Frequency Array, and it'll study ionospheric disturbances like from solar flares that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's trying to map some of the earlier stars in the universe. Um, coronal mass ejections, uh, all aspects, anything, anything that emits radio waves basically from across the solar system or the universe, uh, LOFAR would probably be sensitive to. So I got to talk a little bit about the science behind that and how it worked as a network with a whole net other group of uh, radio telescopes from across Europe and how that's going to improve our knowledge and scientific discovery. So it was it was a great trip and one I would happily repeat. It's cool. I really liked what you said. You kind of were talking about things that you're really excited about or kind of one of the purposes that lights you up about this field is inspiring the next generation. What other stuff is kind of on your horizon that you want to kind of do while you're at Queen's? Like, is there specific kind of things that you want to get out of it or you really want to achieve, I guess, for lack of a better term? Um, I don't, I never sort of, I never think that far ahead. Sure. Um, I sort of, I'm enjoying, I've got so many ideas at the minute. It's a lot of what I do now is trying to get the funding Mm -hmm. to get, to either employ people or to give, you know, graduate students the opportunities to to do some of the research. That's, you know, when you get to my stage at the career, Mm -hmm. having done the research myself for almost two decades it's it's a natural, it's inevitable kind of consequence that you get to sort of hand that off at some point, and that's that's been difficult for me to let go a little bit. And um, 
and and put put away the the coding and the data analysis side of things and be more more of a mentor, I guess, to the next generation. But I've I've also started to now be involved in the in new missions and new spacecraft, and how can we develop new satellites to give us the data that we still need to fill in the gaps. Yeah. We've been doing this research for all this time and there's still so much we don't know, but we need a new satellite that'll give us the data that'll, that's that one last piece of the jigsaw. Once again, we'll, <laughs> we'll know it all by then. <laughs> and and so, so I'm working on a number of, of missions, both for NASA, for the Japanese um, space agency JAXA as well. And also we have funding to launch our own rocket in uh, 2024 from Poker Flats, Alaska. And so it's called a sounding rocket. So it'll, it, these are low orbit, sub, suborbital rockets. They go outside our atmosphere for like five minutes, mm-hmm. 10 minutes most. And it's going to observe the sun. And they're, they're often a test bed of new technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, just because before NASA goes and spending a billion dollars on the spacecraft, they're like, well, here's a couple of million. <laughs> Put it on a rocket first and see if it works. Yeah. And so, I, again, my colleagues in Colorado were the were the brains behind this, and I'm more the sort of scientific side of things. But there's only four or five of us on the team, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm sort of I'm more excited to to do that kind of thing about uh, being more involved in how do we get the data yeah. so much as rather than being on the receiving end. And yeah. so, um, so that's that's going to be a new exciting phase for me. And again, get my students and postdocs and stuff involved as well. Again, one of the, one of the problems for want of a better word of solar physics we have so much data like we've satellites taking data all the time some of the nasa's flagship mission the solar dynamics observatory has like petabytes of of data and something 99 percent walk that down from me so well your phone's got what a couple of gigabytes so terabytes is three orders of magnitude up from a gigabyte and then a petabyte's three orders of magnitude up from that again so it's a Petabyte is a, am I saying this right? Is it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're lost the bytes. <laughs> a three giga, it's a million, million times a gigabyte. I'll, I'll double check that one. Fact checks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've, and that's just from one spacecraft and we have dozens of spacecraft. So there's right. just, there's so much to, um, to, to, to go through and to analyze from, from what we have already. I mean, so, what really just, I think the biggest thing out of everything you've shared today and it's kind of maybe strange that out of everything you have shared, because you've shared some crazy stuff, it's just bonkers to me that you're doing this from Belfast. Yeah. Isn't that I mean, mad? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, Queen's has always been a, a leading university in its own right anyway, and the Astrophysics Research Centre has put out many big, big names in, in respective um, research fields. Uh, from supernova explosions to asteroids and comets to looking for planets around other stars. I mean, Queen's has been one of the big leaders in the, in the UK. And so um, I guess we're shining a light on what we do. This whole podcast is about celebrating what we've got at home. You know, we've, we've a lot of stuff to be kind of questionable about in our, in our past. <laughs> but, you know, we have a lot to celebrate as well. And, and it's you know, having... I guess they, they, they kicked me out of Queens when I was done with my PhD. They were like, go away, go and work somewhere else right, and come back to us. Nice. Go away and work somewhere else, learn other things and, and bring it back home. So that's that's been a nice kind of circular thing for me to, to go away and spend years in the States and then a couple of years in Glasgow um, just before, before before lockdown and then to come back and yep. um, 
start a new phase really I suppose and, and, and settle down for a little while and stop, <laughs> stop all this gallivanting around the world sure for now uh, one of the questions we often ask people is and take this whatever way you want you can take it down the, the space route or you can take it any road you want if you take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a pint dead or alive who would you take and where would you take them and I guess why anyone from Northern Ireland God I think who else? Who's from here? <laughs> it's always <laughs> like uh, the spot. Um, let me get back to you on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the, One question I did have was: so even in your recent lorry driving over lockdown, mm-hmm. what are you listening to? Or no, no, no. <laughs> let me not even. I don't even want to lead the witness. I'm biased because I'm an audio guy. What is it about getting inside the truck? that does something to you because like for me it would be like I'm amazing I can listen to so many podcasts and so many audio books Um, what is that sacred space like for you it's I think even just like we were saying about the new appreciation for lorry drivers that's kind of brought it into focus for me a little bit more Again, I've been driving lorries for 25 years. It's something I've always done, like something I grew up with. And, uh, you know, they're the biggest things in the road. And there's yeah. there's a lot of, you know, care and considerations need to go into to driving. It's a, it's a very skilled job, despite yeah. what people claim, but <laughs> unskilled labor. Um, and, you know, the qualifications you need now to get into medical test. I had to do a medical test last summer and all to keep my license valid. I do regular driver training every few years. Um but I think for me personally, especially having sitting in an office in front of a computer Monday to Friday, it's it's escapism for me. Yeah. It's getting your hands dirty. It it uses a different part of my brain than the sort of mathematical, um, logical, rational side that I have switched on during the week. It's more about spatial awareness, uh, about paying attention, visibilities, and and again, like hands, you're getting more hands on. Yeah. It's more physical more physically demanding or pulling pallets of Coca-Cola up and down a trailer yeah, that yeah. are about a ton weight each. So it's it's just you and doing something very different um to your normal day-to-day week. Um and it's something that I, you know, I enjoy doing and that I can do pretty well. And so it was being able to help out during the pandemic was a was a great help great mm-hmm. thing as well. Plus it gets me out of the house. Sure. And you know, you're up up and down the country and you can park up and have your lunch on the Glenshane Pass and you know, <laughs> just the freedom and the and the and uh, just the scenery changing, I yeah. think I really like. But and and yes, the music is a big part of it. So I've I've often like even if I've discovered a new band or heard bought a new album, I'm like, I wanna go and drive a truck <laughs> and check this out. Like I won't even sit at home with the headphones on. I'll That's get in the awesome. lorry and, and put on the new a new album or whatever and, and just listen to a band and rock out when I'm driving. Yeah. So I don't do too much podcasts or audiobooks or anything, but it's sure. it's all about the music. Awesome, man. Awesome. Uh, most challenging moment so far? In anything? Exactly. In anything? God. It's, there's a lot. Picking yourself up after a grant proposal being rejected or a field interview or... Um, those those days are struggling. Those are hard. Mm. Those are hard. Um, I, don't, I couldn't. I don't think I could point to any one thing. I, you know, there's there's always challenges um, in any career. Moving around a lot. 
just ha not having really any base. You know, I, I divided my time between Belfast and Washington, D.C., and then Glasgow thrown into that as well. And I had to move mm. literally every few months because I had different projects going on. I was, you know, getting funding from different uh, bodies. So that, it was fun. And I, but I, it's something I look back on now and go, God, that took its toll. Yeah, man. Um, it was hard to feel at home anywhere and have any kind of stability sure. for a lot of it. That, that was, that was kind of hard. Um, but I've, I, I'm my own worst enemy. I criticize, I overly criticize myself. I'm very hard on myself for a lot of things and some decisions and stuff. And so just trying to go easier yeah, is, has been a big shift. And I think anyone getting into this kind of thing or most jobs as well, is just giving yourself permission to fail, mm -hmm. you know, and just pick yourself up and, and, and try to get back on the horse again. It's not easy. No. And I've had some kickings. <laughs> I've yeah. had some hello kickings over the years. Um, but yeah, I'm still here. Cool. Flip side then, like proudest moment? The TV show. Yeah. Hands down. Crown Jewel. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not going to win any awards or anything. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, but it's something for me. It's very personal to me. Um, yeah, I've done shows have been on the radio and have done interviews for the people where you show up and you give your bit in 10 or 15 minutes but this was about me and my life and about this whole um, journey yeah. from truck driving to astrophysicist and so that was all on display and the, and the director was very open about we're going to pry and we're going to poke you and we're going to make you react to things we're gonna make you cry <laughs> i did i i did i'll i'll put my hand up and say it I, it was it was very emotional when it all ended but also um peter obviously wanted his telescope delivered on time and in one piece safely and the film crew wanted me to crash <laughs> so you've got these two competing people groups of people that you want to keep really really happy yeah um and that was a very very fine line to walk drives should I say um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting these people what they want yeah. um, and still making an entertaining and hopefully informative and educational TV show at the same time yeah. and I, I just think we nailed it <laughs> I think I'm just everything fell into place even when it went wrong mm -hmm. it went wrong in the best possible way yeah, yeah, it yeah. gave us the maximum drama but no real jeopardy. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that that's well was... put. Actually, maximum <laughs> drama, no real jeopardy. Yeah. Mm. But it, and it and it was genuine because we had planned that we had spent six months or so planning that journey, and literally we filmed the intro to the show, and the crane driver showed up to load us, and he was like, uh, "That's illegal here." <laughs> and everything went out the window from that point on. Wow. It was genuine. Like we were like, "What? We've been we planned this," and they're like, "No, you can't do that here." What we, what we had in mind. The director was sitting there loving this. He was going, this is great. <laughs> and I was pulling my hair out. But it was, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Cool, mate. Very cool. Anyone come up for the Northern Ireland question? Oh, you distracted me. So I go for a pint with. It's a hard question because you always want to go for, or you feel the pressure to go for somebody famous. Yeah. Or someone well-known. And then... You're kind of like, well, like, what about like my granddaughter? Yeah, like, I was trying to think. I even think just... my answer is actually. So I have two answers. Mine's like Liam Neeson, right? Right. Get that out of the way, and then the other one is my granddaughter on my mum's side. You're just like, wow, like it would be crazy to 
to like meet someone like that now at this age. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Because <clears throat> you have a totally different perspective. Oh, yeah, my my granddad was a lorry driver too. So he was really? I used to go around the lorries with him as a kid. And he I was in I was in Siberia when he passed away. Wow. And so I, nobody could get a hold of me for days. Sure. Um so that that was that was a challenge as well. Um I guess if I had to and and somebody I've actually been looking for is the maths teacher uh, who taught me A levels? John Mahan. Oh. I haven't been. He. I had to go back to him. There was the the guy that I, play, you know, just pestered with questions about astronomy and astrophysics. Um, on the run up to our A level maths exam, I go, and that's not going to be on the exam. Like, I don't care. I just, I just <laughs> want to know. I just want to know. Um, and uh, coming back to Queens, then applying to Queens as a mature student. Uh, I had to get a letter of recommendation, so I had to go back to him awesome. after a few years after my A levels and say, "Hey, you probably don't remember." He goes, "You got two Bs in your A levels, right?" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> he remembered everybody, and so he wrote me a letter, or wrote wrote a letter on my behalf that got me into Queens to Crazy. study astrophysics, and so I owe a lot to him. I owe him a pint. Yeah, John Mahan. Last I heard, he was living down in Warren Point somewhere. Yeah, um, so I'd love to get a pint yeah, with him. Be awesome if you get a hold of him. Yeah, very cool. Right, mate, last question. It's the standard land plane question. Uh, if you could go back to an 18-year-old version of yourself, you had a couple of minutes of mm-hmm. 18-year-old Ryan's time, what sort of things would you set in? Turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go easy on yourself, mm-hmm. I think, is a lesson I've learned. Um... Nobody can go back and rewrite any history or re-undo any decisions or um, things we've made. I think it's futile to do that. And everything, even even when it went wrong, it's it's always been a step forward yeah. in in one way or another, rightly or wrongly. Um, and just I just do what you're just do what you're enjoying. Um, and it's, it's again it's kind of cliched. At this stage, but there is a kind of truth to it about um, pursuing your hobbies. If you're if you're doing something you enjoy doing, mm. you'll find a you'll find a place in it, and it'll find a place in you, I suppose. And but yeah, just give yourself don't give yourself a hard time. Give yourself some breathing space. Pick yourself up every now and again. Yeah. Give yourself a pat in the back. Sure. You know when things go right. Take take time to, to celebrate the wee victories. I think we all need a bit more of that. I think a lot of people listening would agree with that too. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thanks for your time today, man. Pleasure. Appreciate thanks it. for having me. And uh, big thanks to Queens for <laughs> doing the introduction to us and making this possible. Cheers.